quite a number of years ago now, when my two teenagers were little and Jonah, my eight-year-old, was a toddler, I began an Advent tradition. Inspired by the blogger and the author Anne Voskamp, if you haven't heard of her, come and talk to me afterwards. You need to hear of her. Well, I think so anyway. Anyway, inspired by her, I decided that I would write a letter every day to my children and also my three godchildren. So the letters were intended to lead them on a journey to Bethlehem and to the baby who would be born there. Letters that would each day unfold the story of Christmas and show how the story began long, long before a star hung in the sky and angels sang to shepherds on a mountainside and told them not to be afraid. I had a wee look um, for those original letters that, that I started this tradition with this week and I actually managed to find them. The first one read, please imagine yourselves at around the ages of nine, six and one. I'm not sure how good my differentiation is within the letter, but never mind. So, dear Joe, Madeline and Jonah, can you believe it's only four weeks until Christmas Day? How exciting is that? Just 24 more sleeps. Did you know that we call these four weeks before Christmas Advent? Advent's a really special word. It means coming. At this time of year, we remember the wonderful story of Jesus being born into the world as a baby. At this time of the year, we also remember that Jesus will come again. That's why it's called Advent. He's coming. You'll notice that this letter arrived with a box. This is your Advent box. Every day we will open it together and we will count down the days until Christmas. We will wait for the baby to be born in Bethlehem. So every day, have your Bibles ready and we'll read the stories of Christmas time. Every day, when you look inside your Advent box, you will find a little treat, treasure or decoration to hang on the Christmas tree. A little something to bring the story alive. And every day, Dad and I will be praying that we will all step right inside the Christmas story, that we will begin to understand that it's God's big story that we're all part of, and we will pray that each of us will hear the angels sing as we bow down in adoration before Jesus, the baby who is Christmas. All our love. Mum and Dad, 1st of December. Now, after that first year of my new Advent tradition, I realised that it was actually quite a task to handwrite those letters <laughs> every day. Um, so before you even begin to think the thought of she is the mother of the year, because I know how us women tend to think, oh, no, 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 because in my house there would be no homemade mince pies, no Christmas cake, no Christmas pudding, and you'll be lucky to have the turkey. But also, I realised this was a little bit of a task, because right in the middle of Advent this first year, I came down with full-blown flu, and I couldn't even remember what day it was, never mind trying to explain the messianic hope and promise in childlike terms found in the passage of Micah that we read today. 
And so the next year, I decided that I'd write my letters well before Advent began, and I typed them. Good job that I did. I got tonsillitis that year. So the years have gone on, and so have all the various illnesses that I succumb to every Christmas, and I've kept up the tradition. Sometimes the letters arrive daily. Sometimes I wrap them all up in a package that I send at the end of November, ready for December the 1st. Those are the good years. And sometimes I just write a couple of letters a week. Every year there's a different theme. But every year we take the journey back to Bethlehem. And each year we learn, just as the wise men once did, that Bethlehem always leads us home by another way. As a church this Advent, our theme is coming home. Using these two words, we will be stepping into the stories of Christmas again and recognizing that Christmas is what it took God to bring us home. We will stay in the story of Jesus the refugee who left his home that we might come home. And as we stay in this story, we'll also spend time thinking of those across the Middle East who've had to leave their homes because of violence so utterly extreme. And we'll consider how we can play a part in walking alongside them as they try to find new places to call home. I've decided that this will also be the theme for my Advent letters this year. I'm actually going to write them this afternoon, by the way, as long as I don't get struck down by the bubonic plague on my way home. In the language that a child will understand, I will write to my godsons Joshua and Oliver of how Advent is four precious weeks where we can take note of the world with all her aches and pains. I'll tell my other godson, Nathaniel, that it's time to stop and take a look around to see where it hurts. We'll think of Syria, Iraq, the refugee camps of Lebanon, the seas carrying boats of refugees to Europe, Nigeria, Somalia, Central African Republic, Beirut, Tunisia, Paris. I'll write to Jonah of how Advent gives us space to see the people and the places that hurt and that it whispers to us of what salvation will look like. I'll share with Madeline of how over the weeks of remembering, we'll start to find words to pray, really pray, for the things that only Jesus can give. I'll write to Joe of how our hearts are hungry for salvation, the kind that only Jesus can offer, the kind that stops the violence of terrorists, the kind that transforms the issues of climate justice, salvation that saves people from ruthless leaders, that brings an end to racism and xenophobia, the kind that brings peace and freedom so that every refugee can go home in safety. The kind that means no one goes to bed hungry. No woman is beaten and raped. No girl uneducated. And no child 
trafficked and sold. My first letter will ask them to go into the garden and find some broken branches and sticks, a little like these ones here. Branches that have little tiny shoots of green sprouting. And with these sticks, we'll make a Jesse pray, a Jesse tree, and we'll use it to pray. Now, if you've never heard of a Jesse tree, you're going to be really surprised to hear that it's named after Jesse, the father of King David. David to whom God promised that his line and his sons and his family would reign forever without end. When the prophet Micah first uttered the words found in our passage this morning, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be the ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old from ancient times. When Micah's first hearers heard those words, they would instantly recall in their minds the days of Jesse, King David's father, who came from Bethlehem. And they would understand something hugely significant, that Micah was telling them that God was about to start something new. These would have been deeply reassuring words. They would have instilled comfort in their original hearers, words of balm and hope to a people in distress. The prophet Isaiah, who was prophesying at the same time as Micah, had spoken of how the family tree of Jesse had been cut down at its roots because David's sons, grandsons, and great-grandsons had turned away from God and they'd become greedy, unjust, self-seeking, heartless. The kingdom and the homes of these kings fell apart and it looked as though the whole family tree of Jesse had been chopped off at its roots. But God promised that this wouldn't be the end of David's line. Someone incredible, a shoot, a branch, is what Isaiah called him, would come from David's family tree. We understand that branch to be Jesus. And this is exactly who Micah is pointing to when he speaks of the new ruler that's to come out of Bethlehem, the little town that is all about new beginnings and God making all things new. And so I'll write in my Advent letters of how our Jesse trees, with their bare branches and green shoots that we can hardly see, can stand in our homes as a reminder that Jesus offers us and our world the deepest hope that even when our world seems to be collapsing around us with kingdoms falling, countries warring, mountains moving, jungles dying, seas rising, people exiled in search of refuge, and leaders and rulers in confusion, God's story is always the grand narrative. And his story is always, despite appearances, making something new, setting all things right. Now, the book of Micah is probably not the most well-known of the prophets. There are bits of this book, though, that are so well-known that they almost leap off the page at us. And our passage today is one of them, made famous not necessarily in the context of Micah, 
but in the context of the Christmas story. Verse 2 of Micah 5 is the verse cited in Matthew chapter 2, verse 6, by Herod's scribe when Herod asks about the birthplace of the Messiah. This verse, along with a trip to Bethlehem on Christmas Eve, 1865, was also the inspiration um, for the American Episcopalian rector, Philip Brooks, to write the carol that we sing every Christmas that we've just sung. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie above thy sweet and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark street shineth the everlasting light, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. It's really important to note that Jesus came from a little town, a small place like Bethlehem. This fact would have really pleased Micah's hearers when they heard that God's ruler would come from somewhere humble. But never in a million years would they have expected that this long-awaited ruler would throughout his ministry focus on the small and the unglamorous parts of life. I mentioned in a sermon fairly recently when I had a better voice <laughs> of how Jesus intentionally relates to those whom the world would see as small and lowly. Jesus is born in a cattle feed trough when his parents had him circumcised, the offering they made of two pigeons was that prescribed for the poorest class of people within society. He lived among the poor and the marginalized, who were drawn to him, even as the respectable were repulsed by him. We see the kind of life that he led when he said that foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. At the end of his life, he rode into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey. He spent his last evening in a borrowed tomb. They cast lots for his only possession, his robe. For there on the cross, he was stripped of everything. He died naked and penniless. He had little the world valued, and the little that he had was taken. He was discarded thrown away. But only because of him do we have hope. Bethlehem leads us home by another way. I wonder whether you've allowed Bethlehem to lead you home, to lead you to Jesus. Corrie Ten Boom once wrote, if Jesus were born 1,000 times in Bethlehem and not in me, then I would still be lost. Micah was a prophet of about 700 years before Jesus was born. Now, when Micah was alive, the country of Israel was split into two separate parts. I'm sure most of you know this, but I always get very confused with my prophets as to what's going on, so I thought I might just, just fill you in very simply. 
Um, Micah was, so, uh, yeah, so Israel, the country of Israel is split into two separate parts. The name of the north part was Israel, and the name of the south part was Judah. Micah was from Judah, and he spoke predominantly to the people of Judah. Like many of the prophets in the Old Testament, Micah tells the people that God's angry with them because they've turned their backs on him and they've lived their lives as though they didn't need him. He gives them the sobering news that God will use their enemies, the Assyrians, to attack them, destroy their cities and throw them into exile. Micah tells the people that God is especially angry with the leaders of Judah as they've treated the people that they were meant to protect and look after badly and unjustly. But as we've already seen with our first verse that we looked at in Micah, Micah also speaks to Judah of all the promises that God has made to them in the past. Promises that say that God will never leave his people, that he won't stay angry at them forever. Micah tells the people that even though things seem bad and frightening at the moment, God is totally in control of the world. And one day, he would send a ruler, a king, one that the people would call the Messiah, who would look after his people in the gentle, protective way that a shepherd would look after his sheep. Also, in the incredibly self-sacrificial way, that Jesus talked about how the shepherd looked after his sheep, that he would lay his life down for them. This ruler would bring peace that would stretch over the whole earth. Now Micah interrupts this good news, these promises, with a rather unusual verse, which you'll find in verse 3. I'll just read it to you. It says, Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. It's almost like he's just interrupting all of the good news to say, oh, but by the way, this wonderful ruler isn't coming anytime soon. So he's not going to be here to save you from all the troubles ahead. Actually, you are going to go into exile. But through this verse, what um, Micah is trying to say, and also through the book of Micah, he's wanting to assure the people of Judah that actually this is God's plan. It's a difficult one, but it's God's plan. And that they're not to think he's not in control that they're not to even think for a moment that his big story of salvation isn't being told. I found these verses quite uncomfortable to read. I don't know how you feel when you read the more tricky verses within the prophets. They're, They're not always comfortable to read. Especially at the moment when we see pictures on our television screens of people who are living in exile, who very much are living the sort of life, really, and the sort of experience that the people of Judah would have gone through. 
But yesterday, um, we, uh, the Global Focus team, we put on a, a Middle East workshop that Dave mentioned to you that Carrie and Malcolm took part in, and also Alison Strang, Ali Aja, and Mike Parker. And Mike said something really helpful. He was talking about the work that he's doing in the Middle East and of how some verses are becoming incredibly pertinent to their work there. And he said this from Jeremiah, that actually um, God has a plan in the here and now, no matter what the situation. So this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. What I want you to do in exile is build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Don't decrease. Also, while you are in exile, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. I found those really interesting words in the light of how God talks about those that he sends into exile. That actually, I don't expect you to wait in limbo or just suffer. I want you to build a life there. I want you to make something of yourself there. I want you to begin to put down roots and have children and have families. I want you to work really hard for the prosperity of the city that you find yourself in. I found those really interesting words in the light of the, um, the refugee and Im immigrants um, situation that we have at the moment. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens, live really live. Make those places your home. And I think what the Bible is saying to us, if we look at it in our contemporary context, is help those who find themselves in exile. Those who find themselves in places they wouldn't necessarily be choosing to be. Help them make themselves a home. Rachel Held Evans writes of how, how, even though sometimes the prophets aren't easy to read, there is no poetry like the poetry of the prophets. Let justice roll down like waters, cried Amos, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. You'll go out with joy and be led forth with peace, sings, sings Isaac. The mountain, Isaiah, and the mountains and the hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees will clap their hands. They refused to heed, lament Zachariah, shrugged their shoulders and stopped their ears so they couldn't hear. They made their hearts like flint. This is what the Lord requires of you, says Micah, that you act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Clapping trees, 
quaking mountains, hearts of stone exchanged for hearts of flesh, swords beaten into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. This is the colorful language of prophecy, which simultaneously comforts and disturbs, frightens and frees. It's a language of lament, of longing, of runaway imagination. It makes demands and it begs forgiveness, issues critique and offers praise. Perhaps more than any other biblical genre, prophecy wakes us up. It grabs us by the shoulders, it shakes us from our reverie, and it orders us to pay attention to the realities of good and evil, injustice and hope that permeate our world. It sings of light from the gloomiest dark, of justice from the smoldering ruins of oppression. It declares ultimately a new kingdom and a new reign. It sets our stories within God's story, a love story that's been coming for us since the beginning of time. You hear the love story in Micah in many ways, but one way that struck me especially is through the way that God makes it clear through Micah that he never intended his people to live their lives separate to him. He longed for them to cry to him and to trust him with their lives. And yet time and time again, they kept putting their trust in earthly leaders who continuously let them down. Paula Gooder writes of how this is a profound challenge to us, as well as the people of Judah. It's easy to go from day to day without consciously placing our trust in God. Then when something goes wrong, we turn to God and we beg for help. Micah actually reminds us quite bluntly, Paula Gouda says, that this isn't on. Either we trust God or we don't. And so this Advent, I will write in my letters of how important it is that we learn to pray. I'll place some little luggage labels in the envelopes of my note and explain that we will use them along with our Jesse tree to begin to learn to bring our whole lives before the God who holds us in his hands and offers us home. Before the one that Micah describes in our final verses as the leader who is like a shepherd. Now the image of Jesus being a shepherd is one that's incredibly powerful in our family. I first came to understand something of who Jesus is as the Good Shepherd by reading a book when I was eight, a very, very old-fashioned book by a woman called Patricia Sindron, and it's called Tanglewood Secret. In it, she talks of how Jesus is the Good Shepherd, how he looks for us, how he carries us, how he protects us, and how he leads us home. When my daughter was eight, I read this book to her. It was a little embarrassing. I wept over every page. She got used to handing me tissues. As we folded over, though, the last page, I'll never forget her whispering in my ear, Mum, can we ask the Good Shepherd to find me? I want to be found. Prophet Micah prophesies that one day this shepherd will bring peace across the whole world. We long for this day to come. But while we wait, 
And this Advent, when we have the time to intentionally wait, let's hear Micah's call to trust our whole lives to God and to bring them before him and not live as though he didn't exist. A few weeks ago, I read an article by a doctor who is working in the refugee camps on the Greek island of Lesbos, whose beaches are seeing thousands of refugees arrive weekly. The doctor wrote of how the situation was utterly catastrophic. We need organizations to come. There are only a handful of volunteers here. There are no organizations except for once a day food distribution, which is nowhere near enough. I've had people holding half-dead babies up to me the whole day, and we have nowhere to send them. Tomorrow will be a disaster. There are no dry clothes for anyone. There's no shelter. There are children sleeping in bin bags. No food, no blankets, no nappies for babies. No access to drinking water for the people who have to stand at the back of the line. People will sleep in the wet and cold tonight in the open air. Half the people will wake up sick and some of them are going to die. I'm sure of it. Please, please, please help. These are the scenes of my eyes before my eyes like a horror film. I can't switch it off. I wish we could pick up the phone and call someone. But who? Who should I call? A charity? An emergency team? The government? The army? Who, who is there to call? Who is there to call? As I read that article and that doctor's words, those words particularly really moved me. Who is there to call? I think many of us have felt overwhelmed by the situation that um, we've seen played out throughout the, the media. Utterly, utterly overwhelmed. Just since um, September when we spoke about the refugee crisis in church, um, so many of you got in touch as to know what you could do to help. Well, something that I'd just like to tell you about really quickly is that in the new year, Global Focus are hoping to get a group of us all together who want to um, help very practically support those who are making Edinburgh their home, those who are living in this city, if you like, in exile. If you would be interested in being part of that group so that you can find out, basically, how you can be involved in this story, then come and see me at the end of the service, and I've got a little sheet for you just to sign your email address or your mobile phone on. That would be really, really brilliant. But we're really committed as a church to step into this story that's happening before our eyes. I was reminded of the story of the Christians in Egypt who in November 2011, in the wake of the Arab Spring, all gathered in the cave church of Cairo's garbage city for a night of prayer. 70,000 Christians. Now, I've been to prayer meetings in Egypt, and my goodness, they've blown me away with 7,000 Christians at them on a Tuesday night or a Monday night. But 70,000 Christians from all streams of the Christian church, 70,000 Christians who were feeling at a loss, already experiencing the pressure of persecution in Egypt because of their faith. 
This political uncertainty was very unsettling and they felt that they had no one to turn to. Their government was not helpful and their country was becoming to feel less and less like home. There literally was no one to turn to but God. And as they stood in the church, they felt compelled to pray for church unity. They were convicted to pray for forgiveness Had they been loving their Muslim neighbors as themselves? They felt driven to pray for revival in Egypt. And as they stood in the church, desperate to hear from God, slowly a prayer started to grow out of them all. Yeshua, Yeshua, Yeshua. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Gradually their cry got louder. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And for 10 entire minutes, the entire church just simply called on his name. Jesus, 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 Jesus. When one church leader was asked why they had met to pray like this, he replied, because it is the best And the only thing that we can do right now amongst everything that's happening. It's the best thing that we can do right now amongst everything that's happening. This Advent 2015, as we a church spend time thinking and praying of ways in which we can best support those who are refugees, when maybe we spend time personally holding before God the places in our world that are hurting, let's learn what it's like to wholly call on the name of Jesus because it's the best thing that we can do right now. If there's anyone who can identify with the refugee, it is Jesus. If there's anyone that we can bring our prayers confidently to, it's Jesus. After all, we gather every week to worship a refugee. Our prayers are raised up to the one whose parents carried him across borders without permission or documentation. Our music celebrates him for rescuing us when we had no hope, nowhere else to go. We raise the cup and we drink the blood that provides amnesty for our sin. We preach to freely welcome exiles across borders of a kingdom they did not build, they did not earn, they do not deserve. We wash people in the waters that tell them that they fully belong, wherever they're from, whatever they've done, no matter what they bring or don't bring with them. I wonder if today we could begin to pray. I've made us a Jesse tree. And there are little labels, little luggage labels on your seat. As the song um, plays, the song now plays in a moment, could you write down on your little luggage label a place, a country, a people, a person, a situation that you want to call on the name of Jesus for this Advent Maybe even you want to use that label for yourself because you want to come home to Jesus. You want to know him. If this is you, we'd love to pray with you afterwards. Come and see us. 
So let's begin to write our prayers and start to form our worlds for, words for our world and hang them on our Jesse tree. They are a reminder that our good shepherd, Jesus, offers us and our world the deepest hope. And in him, we find ourselves at home.